I do think Amazing Grace may be the greatest song of all time. One of the total side note here, but really is only the greatest of all time if you agree that I once was lost, but now I'm found. Right? That's um, the thing that is so hard for most people that keeps them from entering the kingdom of heaven is that we aren't willing to admit that I was a wretch. I was lost. I was blind. But once you do, amazing grace becomes the most precious words that could be uttered. Um, I got a lot to do, and that means probably won't be short, but in order to help shorten it, I'm going to just about forego an introduction. The only thing I'll tell you is I have been trying to go through, we're in the last week of Jesus' life, and now we're really in the last um, two days of his life, and then he'll be resurrected, he'll, he'll die on a Friday and be resurrected on a Sunday. And I'm trying to take an event at a time in this last week. And so the event we're going to look at tonight is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so to find that, if you'll read along with us, turn to Matthew chapter 26. What I'm going to do, a little different than I've done before, is we'll read it. I'm going to try to go back and do kind of a play-by-play And at the very end, instead of doing a recap of the whole thing, what I really want to focus on is this this passage convicted me pretty heavily. And so I would like to, at the end, kind of just go back and be personal with you and tell you where I felt this especially spoke to me, uh, believing that God may use it to speak to you as well. But let's start reading your Matthew chapter 26. I'm actually going to start in verse 30, depending on your translation. Some of, for some of you, 30 looks like the first sentence of a new paragraph. Some, it looks like the last sentence of an old paragraph. But we'll start in 30. After singing psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will run away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone runs away because of you, I will never run away. I assure you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here. Stay awake with me. Going a little further, He fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, So couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake, pray, so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting Look, the time is near. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. My betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. 
His betrayer had given them a sign, the one I kiss. He's the one. Arrest him. So he went right up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, Why have you come? Then they came up, took hold of Jesus, arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand, drew his sword. He struck the high priest's slave uh, and cut off his ear. Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place, because all who take up a sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think I cannot call on my father and he will provide me at once with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with your swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple complex, and you didn't arrest me. But all this has happened today so that the prophetic scriptures would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. Let's pray. God, I, I ask for your blessing tonight as we un. Uh, try to unpack your, your words here and understand what's going on, the, the events and the theology that's, that's tucked inside of here. I pray that you'll give me clarity. I pray more uh, than that, that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts. Specifically in mine, I ask that you will convict me anew to shape me to be more like your son. And then I pray that as you convict me, that you will convict all of us here to see how we're far more like the disciples who can't pray and who run away. And I just pray that you'll make us new creations and that you'll do that tonight. In your name I pray, amen. All right, I just want to go verse by verse. So let's start at verse 30. Just remember this, the... They just had the Passover meal, and that happened about 6 o'clock Thursday night. So that's the, for Jews, Passover, and the way they account days is actually 6 o'clock is the end of one day and the beginning of the next, because they do evening to evening instead of how we do midnight to midnight. So this is, for the Jews, kind of the end of Thursday, the beginning of Friday. But for us, it's about 6 o'clock on Thursday. Jesus has the meal, and he goes through, and he tells them, you're going to betray me. Then they do the Passover, which we just celebrated here. Uh, And they end it by taking time out to sing the Psalms. Uh, They sing, uh, traditionally Passover, you sing Psalms from Psalm 113 to about Psalm 118. And these 12 men and Jesus gathered around and sang together. They just had a time of worship. And I thought, how interesting that the day before, really less than 24 hours before Jesus will be nailed to a cross, the best thing he could think to do with his time is to stop and worship, to have a time of singing and praise. And I apply that a little bit in my own mind. As I was preparing, and it was confirmed today, I thought, For me, one of the things that seems to be the most heavy on my mind is going to happen on Tuesday. I know not everybody shares the same view. I I happen to be of the view that no matter what happens, we're all losing here. And I just, it feels like a weighty and a sad thing. And this morning I came to church and was taught practically that what I'm learning here is true. The best thing I can do for my soul is to stop and worship, right? This morning was awesome. It reminded me I'm small, and God's big. Whoever the president's going to be is small, but God is big. I don't need to run around frantically. Jesus faced his death, and he said, the best thing I can do facing my death is stop and remember how great God is and praise him for it. So I think in preparation for Tuesday, I spent today in the best way I possibly could have. So I just a, it was was fun to see that work out. But anyway, let's move on. They sing songs. 
They get, they get walking together, and they're heading to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus stops to give them a two-part announcement. In verse 31, the first part, he says, Tonight, all of you, all of you disciples, and Judas isn't with them anymore, but the 11 that are still there, you're going to run away. Um, if you've been around preaching for long, you might have heard it. people use the Greek word scandalizo, or you'll be scandalized, or you'll fall away. This word is translated different ways. But you will be, you will fall away, run away. You will be scandalized. You're going to drop away because of Jesus tonight, which is bad news. Jesus tells them, I know what's going to happen because it says so in the Bible. And he takes them to Zechariah 13. I know that you're going to run away because the Bible says you're going to. Um, Then the second part of the announcement is, but after I'm resurrected, I'm going to go ahead of you. I'm going to meet you guys in Galilee. And that is pretty cool. Jesus says, I know that tonight you guys, my 11 closest companions, are all going to turn your back on me and watch me die. And when I am resurrected, I'll be waiting on you. I'm not going to turn my back on you just because you turned your back on me. That is awesome. That is awesome. I can't think of a better announcement for those of us who think, I've turned my back on God. He says, I'm waiting for you in Galilee. Just come back to me. Just come back to me. In fact, as we keep reading through, there's going to be really one big difference between Judas and these other disciples, and especially Peter, who both turn their back on Jesus. And the difference is Peter meets him in Galilee. Judas, his sin, that's the end of his story. He sins, he falls into despair, and he's done with Jesus. Peter, on the other hand, weeps bitterly, but goes and meets him in Galilee. He goes and meets the Christ who says, I am dying to save you from the fact that you're going to turn your back on me. It's an awesome, awesome thing. Anyway, Peter and the disciples seem to miss how awesome that is because rather than say, what, you'll forgive me even though I turn my back on you? Rather than say that, they instead just say, no, we'll never turn away. We'll never run away. Peter especially is adamant about this. Even if everybody else runs away, not me. And you think, it's tough, Peter. Way, Way to be there for Jesus. But the truth is, Peter's missing it. Because what he doesn't understand is that this is not about Peter's strength. It's about Jesus' grace. And the very fact that he says, I don't need grace. I'm not turning around. I'm not going to walk away is why he's unable to miss this awesome statement that Jesus just said, I'll meet you in Galilee. Instead, he puffs himself up. We'll read next week that he's going to have a rude awakening because Jesus is telling the truth. Peter, along with all of them, walk away. But we know Jesus is waiting for them. So after Peter's mistake of thinking that he is too good to walk away, Jesus is going to go on into the garden. And the interesting thing is Peter's going to make another mistake. And you're going to find out that he's unable to pray with Jesus. And I think in part because he still doesn't believe that the temptation in front of him is that big. He thinks, when I face this temptation, I'll stand. And so when he comes in to pray, Peter's going to fall asleep. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Jesus comes into Gethsemane, and he tells his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he takes... Along, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John. So this is often referred to as Jesus' inner circle, his three best friends while he was on earth. He takes them in deeper into the garden to pray. And he says something to them. And let me just pause for a second. How awesome that when Jesus is facing, again, the biggest 
hardest time of his life, less than 24 hours, he will be on a cross. Jesus asks his best friends to come and pray with him. We'll talk about it more later. that's, That's what I want to come back to is Jesus' prayer. So let me pause on that and say, look what happens next. Jesus tells them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow. He says, I'm, I'm sorrowful. I'm deeply distressed. And the message translated is, he's in agonizing sorrow. Another translator said that he is uh, sorrowful and depressed. He, he's in a state of depression. And I just think that any of you who have gone through depression kind of recognize the way Jesus is talking right now. There's a sorrow that is just sucking my soul dry right now. A sorrow that is swallowing me up. I don't, I can't even get out of this despair. It's sucking me dry. To the point that I think that if I had to go on in this sorrow any longer, I would just die. Luke tells us that this sadness is so intense on him that it's actually, he's breaking out in a sweat of sadness. A sweat, he's sweating like drops of blood. It's dripping from his head down to his toes because the physical grief, at this point he has not faced a whip yet. He has not been beaten yet. But the sorrow of what he is facing is wrecking his own soul. I wonder how it strikes you to think that our Lord and Savior seemingly has faced oppression. Ambrose was an early, early church father. And he wrote at a time when people were saying, ah, well, God is all joy. He couldn't have had depression, right? And so he's trying to combat this. And he said, look, I not only do not think that there is any need of excuse In other words, I don't have to defend the fact that Jesus had depression. He says, but there is no instance in which I admire more his kindness and his majesty. It's like, I'm not, I don't have to defend the fact that my Savior could suffer with depression here. In fact, that is what I most admire about him. He says, why? Because he would not have done so much for me if he had not taken upon him my feelings. He grieved for me, who had no cause for grief himself. And laying aside the delights of the eternal Godhead, he experiences the afflictions of my weakness. He says, I boldly call it sorrow because I preach the cross. For he took upon him not the appearance, but the reality of the incarnation. It was therefore necessary that he should experience grief that he might overcome sorrow and not shut it out. For the praise of fortitude is not bestowed on those who are rather stupefied than pained by his wounds. In other words, Ambrose is saying, the fact that Jesus suffered the full extent of the wages of sin for me is what makes his suffering such an incredible act of love. Jesus did not merely die on a cross. That alone, the pain of that, physical pain alone, would be astoundingly gracious. But Jesus took on the emotional brokenness that comes with this fallen world unto himself to show his love for me. He could have gone to the cross stoically, emotionally numb, without any sense of weight to it, It could have been a task that he had checked off his his duties, but he didn't. He approached the cross with full empathy for us and for our sinful state. And Ambrose says, nothing could prove more fully how much God loves me than the fact that he would not only suffer physically, but fully suffer emotionally for me. What love is this?
Jesus brings his friends to pray. He suffers. Another thing he does while he's up on this, in this garden is he prays for a long time. After he takes a break, after the first hour of prayer, and he goes, disciples, they're all asleep. Couldn't you just pray for just an hour? And then he goes and does it two more times. Right? The Bible doesn't give us the exact length, but it implies, I think, that he prayed for a solid three hours that night. A solid three hours in which he spent time with God in prayer. He spent a long time talking to his father. We'll come back to that. I want to talk a little bit about what he prays for. I think the big thing that it seems like, or at least one of the big things, is he's praying for some sort of reconciliation between his will and his desires and the Father's will and the Father's desires. He states that his desire is not to bear the cup, is not to die on the cross. His desire is to be spared of the suffering. But he says, not my will, but yours. The second time he prays, it actually gets us, we get a sense that he gets an impression that I'm not going to be spared from this. Right? The first time he says, if it's possible, let it pass. The second, he says, if it's not possible, if it can't, unless I drink it. In other words, I'm getting the sense that you say, I'm going to be drinking this. He says, that's fine. Let your will be done. He's trying to reconcile, how can I feel this and still submit to the will of God? And interestingly, this brings up some pretty difficult questions for our theology. For instance, how is it possible that Jesus is God and has a will that's different than his father's, who is God? How can Jesus, God, want this cup to pass? And God the Father, also God, not want the cup to pass? It's a hard question. I'll try to give a really simplified and, and, and not perfect answer, but hopefully helpful. Calvin said we can't be monothelites which is, uh, Ethan, do you, two, two Greek words, mono for one, thelos from will. We can't be people who think God only has one will. We have to be a little bit more sophisticated to, to understand there's something complicated happening. Theologians sometimes try to talk about God having a uh, revealed will and a secret will, or another way, that is a will of his precepts and a will of his decrees. The revealed will, or the will of his precepts, is God's perfect will of this is what is good and right. These are the moral things that God desires and wants for us. The secret will, or the will of his decrees, talks about the way that God goes about accomplishing all that he wants to accomplish in the world. And he says, sometimes, though these things aren't really at conflict, they really seem to be. And I kind of understand this because I think that it's similar to how I feel as a parent. Right? I have a will on one level that Dorothy never suffer. If I had my way, she would never be in pain. It's also true that, especially recently... <laughs> More often than not, I'm spanking this girl. She is she, she's starting to seem like she's getting excited about spankings. <laughs> that's not my will. <laughs> but it is my will because I'm spanking her. Right? I don't want my daughter to suffer. I don't want her to be in pain. My general will is that she would never need a spanking. But my decreed will if I could even be like God in any way. My secret will is that I believe that through this suffering here, a greater suffering can be prevented. 
right? Through allowing this spanking, I'm hoping that God will spare her from a life that would have been spared from the rod, right? A spoiled child. I'm hoping that God will honor this suffering to prevent greater suffering. And can't God be at least as sophisticated as we are? Right? Can't God say, it is not my will that any should suffer or any should perish, and then inflict suffering on his only begotten son, and that be what pleased the Father? Can't he have a will that seems in conflict, but when held out from the, from the view of a father or the view of our heavenly father, makes sense? That's what's going on here, it seems. It seems like Jesus says, I don't want to suffer. Right? And it's your will that I don't suffer. You don't want me to suffer. You love me. But also your will is that greater suffering be spared. And so if there's no way to prevent the greater suffering, which is the condemnation of all of us in this room, if there's no way for this cup not to be drank by us, he said, if there's no other way, he said, then I'll drink the cup for him. And so I think that's how this battle of the wills seemingly is going on. Let me bring up another, I think, troubling, possibly, question. Is it wrong, or is it a sign of our own sinfulness, when we pray for something that God doesn't grant? In other words, when Jesus asked for the cup to be removed, was it sinful because it obviously wasn't God's will to remove the cup? Let me read a really kind of lengthy response from Calvin, and I'll, I'll insert some clarifications as we go. He says, but here it may first be inquired, how was his will pure from all vice, his being Jesus, how was he pure from all evil, all vice, when it did not agree with the will of God? For if the will of God, and he's speaking of God the Father, is the only rule of what is good and right, it follows then that all feelings which are at variance are vicious. I reply, Calvin said, though it be a true rectitude, which only people in the 16th century said, but though it be a true thing to regulate, or something we need to do, to regulate all our feelings by the good pleasure of God, he says, yet there is a certain kind of indirect disagreement with it, which is not faulty. It's not reckoned as sin. He says, if, for example, a person desired to see the church in a calm and flourishing condition. If he wished that children of God were delivered from all afflictions, if that all superstitions were removed out of the world and that the rage of wicked men were so restrained as to do no injury, these things, being in themselves right, may properly be, de- be desired by believers, though it may please God to deliver them in a different state of matters. For God chooses that his own son should reign among enemies, that his people should be trained under the cross, that is, that we are trained in godliness through our sufferings, right? It is the triumph of faith in the gospel uh, should be, is the triumph of faith in the gospel is rendered more illustrious by the opposing machinations of Satan. In other words, we know more of God's justice and holiness and love and right because he's allowed evil to coexist. He says, we see how those prayers are holy, which appear to be contrary to the will of God, for God does not desire us to always be exact or scrupulous in inquiring what he has appointed, but allows us to ask what is desirable according to the capacity of our senses. In other words, I believe what he's saying is that he says it is completely good and right for us to pray for what he earlier would have called the moral will or the revealed will of God. It's a great thing for me to see suffering and ask God to prevent it and to remove it, to take it away. But... It has to also be followed with the stern belief of what Jesus follows that with. 
But in your time, in your way, your will be done. He says this, he says, and this is still John Calvin, if even Christ was under the necessity of holding his will captive, so in other words, if even Christ is, my will isn't supreme, it's underneath the will of the Father, how carefully ought we to repress the violence of our feelings, which are always inconsiderate and rash and full of rebellion? And though the Spirit of God governs us so that we wish nothing but what is agreeable to reason, still we owe to God such obedience as to endure patiently that our wishes should be granted. So he says, even if you're praying for good, great things, that this church will grow, that sick people will be healed, that righteousness will rule throughout our land, if you're praying for great things, he says, still... We owe to God the obedience as to patiently wait for his timing in these things. He says, For the modesty of faith consists in permitting God to appoint differently from what we desire. If we have enough modesty to recognize he is God and we are not, we will trust his timing. Above all, when we have no certain and special promise, we ought to abide by this rule, not to ask anything but on the condition that God shall fulfill what he has decreed, which cannot be done unless we give up our wishes to his disposal. So let me try to apply that to our church here and now. We have many, many people in our church that are suffering with various sicknesses. I'm I'm thinking... um, particularly Mary and Marcel and Robert, there are many, many more. We pray regularly. We have a little band for Mary that Dorothy pulls out every night and says, let's pray for Mary. And so we ask, God, heal her. And that is a good and right prayer. But we must simultaneously pray Teach us to trust that you know what you're doing. Teach us to trust that your healing will come rightly in your timing and in your will. We don't know when that will be. We don't know for sure if that will be before she is fully healed perfectly. We're praying for really what is a temporary stay of her life. We're right to do that just as Jesus was right to pray that this cup could pass from him. But we cannot let ourselves get to the point emotionally where we think, and if you don't do it my way, you've done it the wrong way. We have to say, not our will, but yours be done. This kind of brings us, I think is very related to the second part of these prayers. And, and Jesus specifically says that he's asking the disciples, but I think he's doing it too, praying for the ability to resist temptation. Right? That's what he says to the disciples when they're sleeping. He comes to them and says, um, says stay awake and pray in verse 41 so that you won't enter into temptation. He says, your spirit may be willing, but your flesh is weak. Remember, Peter thought, there's no way I'll fall into temptation. Jesus says, you better stay awake and pray. I think this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, my will and yours, God, seem to be at odds. Save me from the temptation of doubting that you are good and right in all that you do. Fortify my soul against temptation. When Jesus prays, not my will, but yours be done, I don't think he's simply saying, God, I'm praying that your decreed will happens, that whatever you say will happen, will happen. Um, If God decrees something to happen, it's going to happen. I think he's saying, God, make me okay with that. Give me the fortitude to resist the idea that my way is better than your way. 
Give me the ability to resist temptation, to think I know better than you. Let's move. I'll try to move quickly through the Judas betrayal. While he was still speaking, they're still in the garden. This is still Friday night, or Thursday night, I'm sorry. Um, still speaking to Judas, one of the twelve arrive. A large mob is with Judas, chief priests and the elders and the people. And his betrayer, let me pause, betrayer is the same Greek word that we've been seeing as earlier translated as handing over, right? Is the word to hand over and betrayer. And we've been asking all along, who is the betrayer? Who is the one handing Jesus over? Matthew here says Judas, the betrayer, shows up. And Judas is now just one more in a long line of betrayers. The chief priests, all the disciples, now specifically Judas, they're betraying, they're handing over Jesus. And so he does it, interestingly, with a kiss, which is emphasizing again, Jesus is not being betrayed by the people out there. He's being betrayed by the people who claim to love him. The betrayal is coming from the inside. Jesus, however, was prepared for this because he had spent the last three hours in prayer. So when his betrayer comes and kisses him, Jesus says to him, friend. And I think, that's amazing. Judas has showed up to betray Jesus, and Jesus treats him with kindness and compassion and calls him friend. And I think the only way we can do that is if we spend time in prayer, deliver me from the temptation of vindictiveness and anger. And I feel convicted about this. This isn't where I'm going to go as my major conviction, but I just wonder if a person who may be my political enemy were to show up, or your political enemy were to show up, would you call him friend? In this area, most people, or a good number of people, aren't huge Obama fans, aren't huge Hillary fans. If she came into this church, could you welcome her as friend? Say, well, no, but her policies are killing a million babies a year. Judas' policy was to sell his Savior for 30 pieces of silver. Right? And he could still call Judas' friend. But he's enslaving people to this welfare state, and we see the damage it's done in our nation. Judas betrayed the Son of God for a measly 30 pieces of silver. God said, friend. Peter, who hadn't prayed, we, here it just tells us one of the disciples, I think, it's, I think it's in Mark that tells us that that disciple was Peter, pulls out a sword and goes swinging and drops an ear. Jesus puts it right back on. And he says, put your sword away, Peter. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And interestingly, Jesus says, if I wanted to, def- if I wanted to get out with an army, I could. In fact, I don't even need your sword, Peter. I have legions of angels that could come and deliver me right here. And I wonder if that was another temptation Jesus was prepared for. Right? Because Jesus is saying, the Father's will is for me to drink this cup, but I have it in my power to walk away from here. I have it in my power to call down angels and wipe out this band of people with sticks and swords. What are sticks and swords to legions of angels? But he had spent three hours in prayer. So he was prepared to put that ear back on and drink the cup the Father was giving him. It's interesting that he goes on to explain why he was. It it seems Matthew has been saying, Jesus is betraying you, Jesus is betraying you. But after three hours in prayer, Jesus was able to not only understand, but to internalize and accept Two places where he says, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled 
in verse 54, and then again in 56. All this happened so that the prophetic scriptures would be fulfilled. Three hours in prayer enabled Jesus to accept that this wasn't ultimately Judas, that he was submitting himself to the will of the Father. So here's what I would like to end with. I want to just kind of confess to you that there's a ton to learn in this passage. But rather than, we, we, we talked about a good deal of it, but there was one that just hit me harder than the rest. And I, I want to confess that I don't, do not feel, I do not feel that I pray like Jesus prays. And I guess that many of you would say, I don't pray like Jesus prays either. And so what I'd like to do for this application, for how can I respond to this passage, is I want to just point out three things Jesus does when he prays that we can do as well. Three ways that we can model our prayer life after Jesus's. And the first one is Jesus prays with friends. On the night before he is to be executed, he calls his 11, but then he gathers his three closest friends and he says, we need to do some battle together in prayer. And so let me ask you, when you need to do battle, who do you do battle with? Who are your prayer friends? There's something that's happening and I need to pray about it This is who I'm going to call. Who are your prayer friends? I wonder if we think we have best friends, but don't know who we would ask to pray with us if we really do have best friends. If my best friend is not somebody that I can go into battle with in prayer, this friendship is lacking something really important. But my simple application point, pray with a team, with your friends. When did you do it last? When can you do it next to gather your friends together and say, we're here to do battle in prayer? My next application is that Jesus devoted hours to prayer. My tendency is to devote moments to prayer. Uh, I heard one preacher say it's like we shoot arrows, little, little arrow shots to heaven with our request. So that's not what Jesus did. Three hours of barrage of his prayer life with the Father. It's the difference of shooting a quick text versus sitting down to commune with God. And so let me ask you is, do you schedule time to pray? Do you have big chunks of time where you say, this is a block of time which is dedicated to me communing with God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? I don't think it's wrong that I send out these arrow prayers. I think that's a great thing. I don't think it's bad to send out a text prayer. That, that type of thing is good. But Jesus modeled prayer by getting chunks of fellowship time in with his Father. Do you? Do I? The problem I know that most of us feel like is, where is, where is that time? I, I had, I'll, I'll just confess with, to you, I kind of had a little section of times carved out in the mornings. And then Dorothy decided sleep is over for her, and so I gave my prayer time up to get up in the morning with Dorothy. And that was not good for my soul. It is important for me, and it is important for you, to make sure prayer is scheduled Diligently spending chunks of time. Never done it before. How about this? Schedule just 
an hour a week. The disciples couldn't stay awake for an hour. Can you give them an hour a week? And then maybe every month, a half day. Once a month, I'm going to go somewhere for a half day, my Bible and pad and paper, and just pray. Just sit and listen. A half day, once a month, and maybe an hour a week, just to cultivate a relationship with your Father. The last thing I think Jesus did is he prayed not just for requests, but he prayed for communion with his Father. Let me try to explain what I mean. For Jesus, the the prayer wasn't simply about making a request. He wanted to get to know. He wanted to be in tune with his Father. If all that Jesus needed to do was make a request, he wouldn't have needed three hours. Right? If Jesus' whole goal was to say, this is what I need, he could have got that. We, that was just a sentence we read in, in Matthew. wouldn't have even taken a whole minute. The implication is Jesus wanted something deeper than simply having a request answered. Jesus was walking toward the greatest struggle and the greatest hardship of not only his life, but of all of history, the death of the Son of God. And he thought the most important thing he could do is to spend three hours about talking with his father, building a relationship. And he tells his disciples, pray this way. Use prayer as a way not to get a request answered, but to fortify your soul against temptations. This is, the, this is going to be your lifeblood. This is going to what will keep you strong. Develop a relationship that will cement your feet when the time comes. So I'll just ask you, do you pray not purely to state your request, but do you pray as an act of communing with God? As Jacob said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. I'm here to pray, God, because I want a word from you. I want you to speak to me. I want to know that you hear me and that you love me. Is prayer a part of your relationship with God? So pray until you've communed with the Father. I want to read one last very long section. And the reason I want to read this to you is because it has convicted me. And then we're going to close in prayer and in a time of response. I told you that this passage convicted me of prayer, and so one of the things I did in response to my own conviction is I picked up some books on prayer. I'm the type of person that likes to read and study, but I knew I need to read and study about prayer, and so I picked up a book. John Piper happens to be one of the pastors that This grabs my heart. So I picked up a book of his and opened up a chapter of his on prayer. And I just want to read some sections to you that spoke to me, hoping they will speak to you as well. He said, prayer is the coupling of the primary and secondary causes. It's the splicing of our limp wire to the lightning bolt of heaven. How astonishing it is that God wills to do his work through people. It's doubly astonishing that he ordains to fulfill his plans by being asked to do so by us. God loves to bless his people, but even more, he loves to do it in answer to prayer. He says, prayer is the translation into a thousand different words of a single sentence. Apart from me or apart from Christ, you can do nothing. That sentence is, Important. Let me read it again. Prayer is the translation into a thousand different words. There's a thousand different ways to say the single most important concept of prayer, and that is, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That's the central thing we're saying when we pray. Oh, how we need to wake up to this, how much nothing we spend our time doing. Apart from prayer, we scurry about. He says, all of our talking, all of our study amounts to nothing. For most of us, the voice of self-reliance is ten times louder than the bell that tolls for the hours of prayer. 
the voice cries out to us, you must open the mail, you must make that call, you must write this sermon, you must prepare for a board meeting, you must go to the hospital. But the bell tolls softly, without me, you can do nothing. Both our flesh and our culture scream against this. Spending one hour's uh, spending an hour on our knees beside a desk piled with papers is un-American to be so impractical as to devote oneself to prayer and meditation two hours a day. So sometimes I feel there are seminaries conformed to this deadly pragmatism, which stresses management and maneuvering as ways to get things done with a token mention of prayer and reliance on the Holy Spirit. A.C. Dixon, he's quoting... Uh, I don't even know who A.C. Dixon is, but he's quoting this guy who says, when we depend upon our organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend on education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. So take one of your days off and go away by yourself and pray Pray about how you should pray. Say to yourself right now, God, help me do something radical in regards to prayer. Refuse to believe that the daily hours Luther and Wesley and Brainerd and Judson spent in prayer are idealistic dreams of another era. Wilberforce, who fought unrelentingly in Parliament for the absolution of the slave trade in England, took his own spiritual temperature by consulting the experience of all good men and lamented, the perpetual hurry and busyness and company ruins me in soul, if not in body. More solitude and earlier hours. I suspect I've been allotting habitually too little time to religious exercises as private devotion and religious meditation and scripture reading, etc. Hence, I am lean and cold and hard. I had better allot two hours or an hour and a half daily. I have been keeping too late of hours and hence have but had but a hurried half hour in the morning to myself. <laughs> 